Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. Romans chapter 11, starting in verse 16. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So let's look at this text together today. I want to begin with this idea of, of mystery, this mystery of Israel. As defined, a mystery is something that is difficult or impossible to understand or explain. Now, many of you know that uh, I am a fan of the British mystery, especially the British murder mystery. Don't hold that against me. But I love to read and sometimes even to watch mysteries. And, and like you, I try to solve it, try to figure it out. 
Now, the writers have gotten better over time. They figured out to keep us in suspense and not give us enough information to get us to the end. And, aha, that's who did it. The who done it. And it's typically not the butler, right? To solve a mystery, what do we do? Well, we look for clues and we rely upon deductive reasoning. Especially if you have a big pipe and a trench coat, right? Some mysteries, however, are easier to solve than others. And let me just give you a quick example. When we consider the general revelation of the universe, when you and I, when we look at the splendor of the heavens, we consider the beauty of the earth, it is not difficult to deduce that it was designed, that it was created by God. Indeed, His invisible attributes, Paul writes, Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, even since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. It is not difficult to look at creation, to solve the mystery, as it were, of creation's origin. Even a child can do that. It's only the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. There are, however, some mysteries that are not easily deduced, even unsolvable, impossible for you and I to understand. That is, unless God has chosen to reveal them by His special revelation. And this is the kind of mystery that Paul refers to when he says this. Look with me at verse 25. When he says this, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Or it could be translated brothers and sisters. I don't want you to be unaware, or the Greek word there could be translated ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has revealed this mystery to Paul and through Paul to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. So what's the mystery? What is the mystery unknown but now revealed by God? Continue to look at verse 25 with me. It is this. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now think about this. This explains so much. Think about it. The mystery revealed helps us explain the Jews' unbelief during Jesus' earthly ministry. It helps explain their rejection. It helps explain their crucifixion of Christ. It helps explain their ongoing unbelief even after His miraculous resurrection. This helps explain why so many Jewish people throughout the world have still not believed in their Messiah. This helps explain why so many Gentiles have been brought into God's church at the exclusion of the Jews. This helps explain so much. So much so that we should not be ignorant of it. We should not be unaware of it. And so let's look at this passage more carefully. And I want to start with this concept. And it's the concept of broken off. The concept of broken off. And so I'll begin with a question. If a partial hardening has come upon Israel, and it has, as Paul states here, if a partial hardening has come upon Israel, who's Israel? Who, who is this Israel that he's talking about? For example, 
Paul uses the word Israel in a, the name Israel in a number of ways within his epistle to the Romans. Uh, we may think back to chapter 9, verse 6, in which Paul clarifies not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. I mean, just right there, and it's the same word, by the way, Israel. Israel is Israel, but Israel is not Israel in Paul's argumentation, right? So he's making a distinction here. This is similar to his distinction that he made, we think back all the way to the beginning of the sermon series, and we were looking at the second chapter, when Paul said, no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And then he goes on to use the name Jew in a very natural way that disagrees with this point. In other words, what Paul, what's Paul doing? He'll use Israel in a certain way, and then he'll use Israel in a certain way. He'll use Jew in a certain way, and then he'll use Jew in a certain way. And it's in this dual use of the name Israel that there are those who are naturally born Jews, comprising Israel, not as a specific country, but as a collective group of people. And then there are spiritual Jews, children of Abraham by faith, comprising spiritual Israel. How do we know the difference? Context. Context will typically help us distinguish between Paul's uses of this name. So which is it? Which is which in this mystery of Israel? Who is this partially hardened Israel? In general, when Paul means spiritual Israel, he is referring to all who are children of God through faith, whether Jew or Gentile. When Paul means natural Israel, he may be referring to ancient Israel, or he may be referring to Jewish people as a whole. And so here in our passage today, context dictates that we understand this mystery as referring to natural Israel. Jewish people who are scattered throughout the world. Now to help us understand this mystery of Israel, Paul provides the metaphor of a cultivated olive tree, which is a metaphor that he's using here to represent the church, the church of God. So he uses the metaphor, there's a cultivated olive tree. In fact, he writes quite a bit about this tree, doesn't he? And this church, this, this olive tree... If we think back to church history, we think back to church history going all the way back to Abraham and the patriarchs, we know that originally the church consisted not exclusively, but for the most part, of Jews. So the natural descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were the natural branches of the tree, of the church. And they enjoyed a special relationship with God, didn't they? A special relationship in His church. And they were very much unlike the wild olive tree out in the wild of the Gentile people. But according to, as he puts it in verse 22, according to the severity of God, the Jewish people stumbled over Christ. They stumbled over Him in their unbelief. And God broke them off. Broken branches from the tree of God's church. Such is the case 
for over 2,000 years, the majority of Jewish people have been broken off from the tree of God's church. Broken branches, however, and let's be clear on this, broken branches do not mean an unhealthy tree. In fact, the tree of God's church is alive and thriving. As the root remains healthy, the root feeds the tree. And so the tree is healthy. But does this mean that temporarily this tree, this cultivated olive tree, does this mean that this tree is temporarily branchless? Just the solid core, no branches because, well, they've all been broken off. Well, no, because at Pentecost, the most unique event occurred. Gentiles were grafted in to the broken branches. They were grafted in, nourished from the root up. And so the second concept that I want us to think about, in addition to this broken off of the natural branches, is this idea of the grafted in of the unnatural or the wild branches. Now grafting, in case you don't know it, and I imagine some of our younger uh, attendees and members here may not know what it is, but grafting is a horticulture, easy for you to say, a horticultural practice in which you take a wild branch or a shoot and you graft it into another branch a branch oftentimes that had been severed, and you bring it together to form a new branch. So that's the imagery that Paul is elaborating on here, this grafting in. And and in Paul's use of the metaphor, Gentiles are branches from a wild olive tree, grafted onto the the broken stems of this cultivated olive tree. It is a grafting done how? It's a grafting done by God's sovereign grace in Christ. God never intended to have a branchless tree as his church, but rather to graft in new branches, new branches, new branches from every tribe, tongue, and nation. We see this grafting most evidently in Christ's great commission, in which he commands the church Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission, as it were, is a great ingathering. The Great Commission is a great ingrafting. It is also ongoing. Note again verse 25. How long shall this engrafting continue? Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Meaning what? Meaning that there will come a day when the natural branches of Israel will be grafted back into the church. There will be a day when the natural branches will be grafted back into the church. Interestingly here, which applies to both Jew and Gentile alike, Paul tells both the broken branches of Israel and our engrafting, he tells us words of caution. For example, for us, do not be arrogant toward the branches. 
He goes on to say, do not become proud, but fear. Why does Paul do this? Why does he feel like he needs to give us words of caution? As if we are arrogant, wild branches grafted into the church. As if we are proud of who we are as these branches that were grafted in of no doing of ourselves. Why does he do this? Well, I think there are several reasons. I'm just going to offer this morning three reasons why I think he does this. The first is because we tend to think of ourselves and our ability more highly than we ought and fear God less. The first reason why I think that Paul does this is we tend to think of ourselves and our ability more highly than we ought and fear God less. Think about this, you readers of your Bibles. How often have you read in the pages of the Old Testament and you distinguish yourself from those who have gone before us? If it had only been me, not Adam. <laughs> I would have seen that snake coming, right? If it had only been me, I wouldn't have fallen like Samson. If it had only been me, I wouldn't have been on the roof like David. If it had only been me, and we distinguish over and over again, looking downward at those who have gone before us. How often do we forget that but for the grace of God, you and I too would have shouted, crucify him, crucify him. But for the grace of God, brothers and sisters, but for His mercy, we too would have demanded His blood is on us and our children. Apart from the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit, we would never have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord or believed in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. Never. Never. No, when we consider the broken branches of Israel, it should Humble us. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. There's a second reason that I think Paul gives us this caution. And it's it's related to the first, and that is this. We must guard against pride and arrogance. We must consistently be on guard against pride and arrogance. We tend to confuse the Lord's provision and sustaining strength with our own. And Paul reminds us in verse 18, It is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. And don't think that we, we Reformed folk, we conservative Presbyterians who know our theology don't think that we're not susceptible to this. Because you know what I have found? I have found that we who believe that we are saved by God's grace alone, by faith in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, live as if we can handle it all alone. Oftentimes we live in direct opposition to the rich theology that we believe. Just as God saved and sustained His old covenant people, so He saves and sustains His new covenant people. For it is the Holy Spirit as our deliverer that enables us to believe the gospel, and it is the Holy Spirit as our sustainer who empowers us to live for Christ. So let us guard against pride. 
Let us guard against arrogance and in humility look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. But briefly, there is a third reason why I think Paul gives us caution here. Why he warns us. And that is, we tend to forget our past and we tend to ignore our future. We tend to forget our past and we tend to ignore our future. Contrary to the belief of many Protestants, church history did not begin at Christ's resurrection. Contrary to the belief of many Christians, the church did not begin at His ascension. Contrary to the belief of many Protestants, church history did not begin with the Protestant Reformation. Right? (laughs) Church history began in the beginning. And so we look back with gratitude. We look back humbly thankful to God, to God's revelation, to Israel. Paul says to the adoption, to the glory, to the covenants, to the giving of the law, to the worship and the promises. And it's with gratitude that we remember to them belong the patriarchs and from their ethnicity, from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ. But we should also remember what is to come. What is to come when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and the end of time draws nigh. In God's perfect timing, in His terminology, a remnant representing the whole will believe the gospel. When? is not for you to know and not for me to know that it will is for us to know as Paul describes it here in fact quoting Isaiah he says in chapter verse 27 though the number of the sons of Israel rather chapter 9 verse 27 not chapter 11 Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea which is a Hebrew idiom meaning for Meaning what? A lot. Though the sons of the children of Israel be a lot of people, only a remnant of them will be saved. Leading to Paul to conclude in our passage today, in verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. A remnant representing the whole as he describes it. Now, to further explain this, and I know this is confusing to some, to further explain this, Paul provides... Two metaphors for us. You saw them right at the beginning of this passage. Look up at verse 16 with me. And look at both of these metaphors. And why it's important for us to join verse 16 with what follows. The first of these two metaphors references God's command that Israel offer the first fruits. Or the first part. It's a picture of offering of bread dough upon settling the promised land. It's referenced in Numbers chapter 15. And so Paul is drawing from Numbers chapter 15 to give us an example, to use this metaphor to tell us what? Well, from the first grain harvest, Israel in the promised land for the first time would mill, prepare, bake bread, enjoying the blessing of the land. And what did God say that they are to do? The first portion belongs to the Lord. And it is that first portion that is representative of the whole of their harvest. Look at verse 16. 
If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump is holy. The second metaphor that he gives is that of a root to a tree. That of a root to a tree. Tall oaks from little acorns grow, so the saying says. So also a tree grows upward and a tree goes outward from its root. So the one root is representative of the many tree branches. So in this sense, as Paul says here, if the root is holy, so are the branches. The one root is representative. In this sense, all Israel will be saved when the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And it's then, it's then when this remnant, with this representation of the whole, when they come in, then Paul says in verse 26, quoting from the Old Testament, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And so what Paul has laid out for us is this idea of these natural branches being broken off, these wild branches being grafted in. This is where we are today, but so also leading to a time, and and this is a, a topic that is not explicitly mentioned here in this passage, but is implicit, and that is, is that the natural branches and the wild branches grow together in one tree. They are grown together. So then what do we make of this olive tree? What do we make of God's church today and in the future? Will the natural branches always be broken off? Under the old covenant, God's church consisted primarily of Jews, natural branches of the tree. Under the new covenant, God's church has grown primarily through Gentiles, wild branches grafted in. But when Christ returns, His church will consist of Jews and Gentiles, all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the way the Apostle Paul puts it to the Ephesians. Listen so closely. He says to the church at Ephesus, Since Christ has made us both, Jew and Gentile alike, one, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of, of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, what? Number of metaphors floating around, right? Body, tree, man, all of these Paul is using to point us that we are to be grown together from the root up into a healthy, thriving tree. And in this, it's in this that we can understand what I think is the hardest verse not to understand, but to accept in this passage, and that's verse 22. We can see then the kindness and severity of God. Seemingly a mystery before, now here reveals the sovereign mercy of God. As Paul puts it, look with me at verse 30. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy, 
because of Israel's disobedience, so they too have not been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that, we may have, that He may have mercy on all. You and I, apart from God's grace, we were disobedient to God. Israel, disobedient to God. Yet God has shown mercy to us, and He will show mercy to Israel. He is God. You're not. I'm not. He is, and He has consigned all to disobedience, that He may have mercy on all. And by all there, He's meaning Jew and Gentile alike. Of His elect, those who He is to save, He will have mercy on all of us. And so, how do we respond to this? This is pretty heavy. How do we respond to this? That which was a mystery, now revealed. Worship. We respond with worship. And one of the key aspects of worship is prayer. My house shall be a house of prayer. Not meaning prayer meetings or specific rote prayers, but of prayer referencing the aspect of worship. My people may gather and may worship me in this prayerful sense. With reverence and awe, we praise God for who He is. Acknowledging what? Acknowledging His riches. Acknowledging His wisdom. Acknowledging His knowledge. When we gather and worship, what do we do? Well, we confess that His judgments are unsearchable. That His ways are inscrutable. We offer up our thanksgiving to Him. Knowing what? Knowing that from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. And we submit our petitions to Him. Praying, and I love the way the old Westminster Directory of Worship puts this. Many of us are not familiar with that today. But one of the things that the Westminster Directory of Worship directed believers to pray for is in this way. Listen closely to this. It says that we are to pray for the propagation of the gospel and the kingdom of Christ to all nations, for the conversion of the Jews, the fullness of the Gentiles, the fall of Antichrist, and the hastening of the second coming of our Lord. Oh, that's a good thing to pray for. That's a good thing for us to remember as we work our way through our petitions. <laughs> Couple that one with Grandma's twisted ankle, right? <laughs> Couple that one with John's got the sniffles. <sighs> Let us pray for the propagation of the gospel, the kingdom of Christ to all nations, for the conversion of the Jews, for the fullness of the Gentiles, for the fall of Antichrist, the hastening of the second coming of our Lord. For in our praying, we are then mindful of the mystery of Israel, their future restoration, their engrafting back into the tree, but also our union with them. As Paul challenges us to think, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Life from the dead. Life from the dead. Such are the mysteries of God. Such is the mercy of God. And this is mu- there is much with God. There is much with God that is unsearchable. Indeed, inscrutable. But behind the mystery, behind the mystery is the revelation of God's glory. And so let us remember this. God moves in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. He plants his footstep in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unsearchable minds of never failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God in heaven, such are the mysteries. As we open the pages of Scripture and we see how gracious you have been to us at this time to show us how you have been at work from the beginning, how you have been redeeming your people, your old covenant and new, according to your sovereign purpose. Oh God, as we consider the magnitude of what you have done for us and what you will do for the Jewish people, all we can do is cry out, Oh, how glorious you are, O oh God. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We pray that we would be a people who indeed are not arrogant and proud, but humble, a people that rest in your sovereignty and look to you in praise. We will pray this in Jesus' name, praising your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fortsmouth, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.